listening to a podcast from The National. Were Turkey's election results marred by a lack of transparency? Recep Tayyip Erdogan was elected to another five years as president this week, winning 53% of a democratic vote. But how legitimate was the result? Erdogan has consolidated power to a level not seen since the country's first president and founder, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, in 1923. Now with complete executive authority, what are his ambitions for the country, both at home and abroad? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mina El Durubi, and this week we'll discuss Turkey's newly empowered president. And later in the episode, we'll look at the UAE's humanitarian effort in Yemen. who this week reaffirmed his place at the forefront of Turkey's government. We're joined by Liz Cookman, assistant national editor, who spent over two years as a journalist in Ankara. Thanks for joining us, Liz. Hi, Mina. So in a piece you wrote for The National following the election, you said Erdogan gambled by calling the election. And it was a gamble that he won. Why was it a gamble? Well, originally these elections were supposed to take place in November 2019. Um, In April, Erdogan brought that vote forward to this week. Um, At the time, the economy was showing signs of um, a downturn. He was polling low um, in opinion polls. um, A lot of people were feeling the squeeze as the lira had continued to fall against the dollar. Inflation was high. Unemployment was high. And um, the state of emergency that had been in place since the failed coup in 2016 had left lots of people um, out of work, a lot of people disillusioned. So he brought the election forward in the hope of um, getting ahead of any further downturn in opinion or the economy that might work against him. Erdogan won with 53% of the vote, far outpacing some polls that had him with only 30% support. And the opposition appeared strong leading up to the election. Would you say this was an unfair election? Many people believe so, yes. So the OSCE, which is a European human rights group, released a report saying that the opposition had their fundamental freedoms restricted in the run-up to the election. So not only were the snap elections sprung on them, not giving them much of a chance to prepare or campaign efficiently, they... um, faced a lot of challenges such as media bias. They were not given the um, time in either newspapers or TV or radio for their candidates or to air their policies or to counteract claims by the uh, ruling party. New laws were introduced earlier in the year allowing police at polling stations and allowing um, ballot boxes to be removed from polling stations, which many people saw as um, a way of legitimising cheating. And there were lots and lots of issues surrounding it that people were not happy with. The day itself was marred in controversy. There were many accusations of vote fraud, of ballot stuffing, of people voting more than once, of altercations at polling stations, of heavy-handed treatment of voters. So would you say that people, I mean, after the vote, would you say that people have lost hope in the, in the electoral system of Turkey? I think many people see it as a backslide away from democracy and towards um, more of an illiberal democracy. People no longer see it as a 
truly democratic system and more of a system where you can vote, but you don't have the freedom to campaign openly, that you don't have the separation of powers that a, a true democracy would have. And what about the security situation? How was it like on the ground on the day? Were there any attacks happening? Well, three people were killed in a fight in the lead up to the election. Uh, there was a fight between supporters of the pro-Kurdish HDP and supporters of the AKP, the ruling party, that resulted in three deaths. And on the day, an HDP district head was shot and killed. And there were reports of many like minor skirmishes and fights in Ankara and in the Kurdish southeast. And is this seen um, quite often in Turkish elections? Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where um, Can you tell us a little bit about previous elections that this has happened in? I mean, there's always some, there's always a lot of claims of foul play at the very least. Um, one of the favourites is that there always seem to be power cuts around the time of counting votes, which seem to get in the way of um, the machines that are in place to count votes and that seem to result in a lot of an anomalies. Um, one of the favourites that people like to tell is the story of when uh, the government got caught um, rigging votes and their excuse was that a cat got into the machine <laughs> wow so I mean let's go back to Erdogan he was first elected as prime minister in 2002 and I mean under a new Turkish system there will be no prime minister and Erdogan will effectively be the sole head of state what will this new government look like well at the moment nobody knows um, so Erdogan will have more powers as the head of state. He will have the powers to um, appoint ministers, to fire ministers, to appoint um, Supreme Court judges, to shape the system how he would like it to be, essentially, with the parliament having much less say in that than they did previously. But at the moment, we don't know exactly the shape of how that's going to work and what it's going to look like. Um, there are big changes on the way. He's already announced that... Um, they will be getting rid of the bureaucrats, which perhaps means getting rid of MPs that he's not um, that oppose him or that he doesn't like. Um, there are going to be fewer ministries, and as you said, the role of prime minister will be dissolved. But Liz Erdogan, he won the elections in a democratic process. I mean, where millions of people got to vote for him. Let's say, what's his appeal to the people? Well, first of all, a lot of people would not call it a democratic election or a democratic process uh, because the government had such a heavy-handed approach in um, proceedings in the lead-up to the election. But Turkey has a deep-rooted need for a father figure. You can see that in the way that they passionately believe in Ataturk still, who was the founder of the Turkish Republic. His posters are everywhere. His quotes are everywhere. It's a part of their Turkish psyche. It's very rooted in them. And Erdogan wants to replace that kind of figure. That's how it comes across. And people adore him. He rejects um, what he calls Western meddling, which is very popular with people. He has liberated conservatives that were very oppressed under Ataturk's secular republic. Um, the hijab was not allowed to be worn in universities or for women who worked in the civil service. He's also very charismatic and his popularist rhetoric uh, works with Turkish people. He whips up their nationalism, which is a very much a deep-rooted part of Turkey. Um, all of the three major parties in Turkey are nationalist parties. It's very much a part of what people believe in, and he really knows how to hit on that, especially with the recent operations in Afrin and Syria. 
and offensives in um, the Kandor Mountains where the PKK, which the Turkey see as one of their biggest threats. So what's next on Erdogan's agenda, both internationally and domestically? So first of all, we need to see what sort of shape the new government and new parliament are going to form. We will probably see um, a lot of announcements about people who are losing their positions in government and also people who will be appointed to higher positions, I imagine. In his victory speech, Erdogan already has spoken about how liberating the people of Syria is still a key point for them. It's a very popular move with the nationalist MHP, which Erdogan's AKP have entered a parliamentary coalition with. From an international perspective, we're likely to see more interest in areas like Manbij and the Candle Mountains in Iraq. Both are areas where there's a lot of activity from Kurdish forces, and that's a key topic for Turkey. We're likely to see more worries over Turkey turning uh, further towards Russia, who are also fighting against Kurdish forces in Syria. And in my opinion, I think we're also likely to see much more severe crackdowns on dissent. The political prisoners who are already in prison are probably going to lose any hope that they're ever going to get out at this point. There's about 140,000 people who've been detained since the failed coup. And already since the elections, um, there have been mass arrests. This week in Yemen has seen continued battle in the port city of Hodeida between the Arab coalition and Houthi rebels. As part of the coalition, the UAE has also been at the forefront of the humanitarian effort to help the people of Yemen. Reem Al-Hashimi, the UAE's Minister for Humanitarian Coordination, went into detail on this humanitarian effort at a press conference in Abu Dhabi on Tuesday. Uh, There has been, from the very beginning, a, a careful and determined approach to ensuring that aid supplies continue to come forward. And so to that date, we've already put in place, as the UAE alone, 35,000 metric tons of food and supplies. The Emirates Red Crescent has been also incredibly active uh, in providing uh, aid and has, uh, I think today has, or as of yesterday, has already dispatched a team that can help the facilitation and distribution of that aid. What's very important to note is that the UN entities are also continuing to offload their aid from their ships that continue to receive clearances into both Al-Hudaydah port but also Salif port. So the current stockpile, if you will, of food supplies in Hodeidah, not the city, but the government of Hodeidah, is close to around 100,000 from what we understand the United Nations is telling us, and we are coordinating very closely with them. That amount, just to give you a sense, um, can feed 6 million people for about a month. The the commitment that we also have beyond food, Mina, is uh, looking at shelter in case the IDP situation gets out of hand, but also medicine and the types of necessary stocking for medicine, uh, as well as water, which, as you've seen earlier, uh, has been uh, a resource that has been compromised by the Houthis in their building of trenches and in their exacerbation of an already fragile situation. Um, 
as well as finally, I would say fuel. So if, if there were five data points, I'd look at food, I'd look at healthcare, I'd look at shelter, I'd look at water, and I'd look at fuel as well as the areas of our focus. Uh, obviously, there are plans across these, not only from a physical supply standpoint, which is important, but also those that can help administer. So for healthcare, for example, you need healthcare workers or healthcare professionals that can help administer some of this um, medical supplies to those that are in need. Minister Al-Hashimim also outlined the UAE's plans in providing assistance to Yemen long after a UN resolution is reached. We, we are very committed, as you all know, to, and that's why I used words like prosperity and stability earlier. This is not just to um, create a stable environment, but it's an environment that also can help the Yemeni people thrive and, and really reach their potential of employment, of health care, of dignity, of um, uh, SMEs. There, there's so much that they are capable of, that they deserve, that they have been robbed of for a multitude of reasons. And, and so the role of the coalition, the commitment that we continue to make is to ensure that that level of prosperity is brought to them and that opportunity is, is also afforded and awarded them. And so we, um, we have, you know, we're, we're here for the long run, Elizabeth. We have been with Yemen. There's been a commitment of more, almost four billion US dollars um, in the last two or three years alone let alone the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And, and this is just to put our relationship with Yemen in an overall context. Um, we are, uh, they are our fellow neighbors, our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow um, members of, uh, of, a, of a community that we hold incredibly dear, which is why the continuous um, violation of the Houthis and the continuous manipulation of their fragile state for uh, their own uh, ideological advancement is something that we refute completely. This week, the UN Special Envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths, is due to hold peace talks with the internationally recognized government of Yemen. Minister Al-Hashimi detailed how the UAE is helping the Yemeni people during these ongoing conversations. The special envoy uh, requires about a week or so in his conversations, and as you can appreciate, those are quite delicate. Uh, I believe that uh, Friday, Saturday is when, uh, is when that week comes to an end. We have uh, continued to take a very, as I said earlier, very measured and tactical and careful approach, so there isn't a a time clock per se, but there's also a very clear understanding from our side that the status quo is not acceptable. Um, and therefore, we are very uh, keen and very determined to ensure that there is a full withdrawal of the Houthis in the city. Um, there has been conversation about what proposal the UN might have vis-a-vis the management of the port. We are open to, to finding ways in which this would actually work for the people of Yemen and for the Yemeni government to fully endorse these plans. Um, the UAE has continued to be a very uh, thoughtful, open, uh, and approachable partner in some of these very difficult conversations because we believe that the end game and the outcome for the Yemenis is what uh, is the most important. Liz Cookman for her insights on Turkey, and Rima Hashimi, the Minister of State for Humanitarian Coordination. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing this episode. 
subscribe to Beyond the Headlines for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and follow our continued coverage on the Middle East on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Mina El-Durubi. Join us again next week. 